again. We are in chapter 2, book of Hebrews. We are in this series. Hebrews chapter 2. And we will begin we will begin reading at verse 10 and we'll read through the chapter. If you turn there, excuse me, we'll start at verse 5, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll read, we'll read through the chapter. But before we begin, um, you know, it's never easy to say goodbye to members of our church family, but as many of you know, Bart and Becky Coghill are going to be leaving us, and they're going to be going to Jacksonville uh, to be closer to their family. And even though we are very sad to see them lose up, leave us, we rejoice in them that they're going to be able to be with their family and, and be closer to them. They have been instrumental in our Awana Club from the time we started. And, you know, I just have a feeling that um, in some church in Jacksonville, Bart and Becky are going to be involved in Awana and probably Spark. Amen. So just take a moment uh, to say hello and, you know, just goodbye for a time anyway uh, before you leave to the Cog Hills. Okay. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Read along with me. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Let's stand in honor of God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who is a little, for a little while was lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when he been tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless the reading of his precious word. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that unless you show up this morning, nothing good will happen. And we pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, that that through your Holy Spirit, that you will break your word to us that we might understand, that we might see where you want us to be as your children in this church and in this community. And we pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. You know, just a month and a half ago, we celebrated Christmas, and we have sung some what you would commonly commonly think of as Christmas songs today, but really they're not. They're really not. You know, Christmas is a time that we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son of God into the world to be our Savior, God becoming flesh, and blood, Emmanuel, God with us. But you know, that should be the message that we preach and we believe all year long. The question I want us to consider this morning is, why did he come? Why did he come? Why did God invade human history in the person of Jesus Christ? Why did the eternal Son of God leave heaven in all of its glory to be born a baby in Bethlehem? Why did Jesus become a man? Our passage this morning in the book of Hebrews answers that question. See, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus came to do what the angels could not. He came to do what the angels could not do. And, you know, throughout this chapter and, uh, and, and the next chapter even, we've, we've seen Jesus, who is superior to the angels. He came to do what the angels could not do. First, I want us to see Jesus became a man to restore man's lost destiny. He came to restore man's lost destiny. Look at that in verse 5. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. In other words, God did not give the angels the right to rule the universe and the world to come. That was not appointed to angels. If God did not give that right to angels, who did he give it to? Well, God gave it to man. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. Verses 6 through 8, it has been testified somewhere. Well, see, you know, the writer of Hebrews didn't have a, a Bible with all the chapters and the verses that, that we have. So he said it's somewhere in there. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he, quoted, he quoted Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything 
and subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, psalm 8 is a psalm of David. And, you know, I can just imagine David, maybe as a shepherd boy. We, we don't really know exactly when David wrote this, but I can just imagine David out beneath the stars on a clear oriental night, looking up into heavens and asking God, what is man's place in the universe? Where does man fit in in this vast universe that you created, O God? And the Spirit of God answers in verse 8, you made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And this man was created to be ruler over God's creation. A little lower than angels, inferior in power, but far greater in privilege. You know, this takes us back to the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and every living thing every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then if you skip down to verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds <coughs> of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was God's intended destiny man to have dominion over everything not just the the earth but the entire universe that God created verse 8 says he left nothing outside his control talking about Adam the sun the moon the planets the stars the flowers the birds the fish the animals they were all under man's control and dominion but things are not like that today are they no, they're far from like that today. God's intended destiny for man was damaged. It was damaged by the fall. Look at verse 8 again. At present we do not, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I think it's talking about mankind. You know, these words tell us a tragic story of Genesis chapter 3, the tragic fall of man the entrance of sin into the world. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, he lost dominion over creation. And so it is today. Can you tell a fish to bite the bait? No. Can you tell a bird to sing? No. We can't even control our own pets, can we? <laughs> we cannot even control ourselves because we're sinners. So the question is, is there hope that man's lost dominion over creation can be restored? And the answer is yes, yes. I want you to look at verse 9 again. But we see him. Who's that? That's Jesus. But we see Jesus. Oh, I hope you see the contrast in all of this. Man has lost his dominion over creation, but we see Jesus. Don't see, Jesus came 
to restore what man lost in the fall. Look at verse 9 again. But we see him who is for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Yes, for a little while, Jesus became lower than the angels, just for a short time, just in his incarnation. He took on flesh and blood like us so that he might suffer and die for man's sin in order to restore man's lost dominion over creation. Jesus is the last Adam who came to restore what the first Adam lost. Just think with me at the life of Jesus. When Jesus walked this earth, he exercised total dominion over creation. He exercised dominion over the fish of the sea. You know, I think about that day that Jesus was with his disciples, and they were fishing. And they had been fishing all night and had caught absolutely nothing. And Jesus called them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, and they would catch plenty, so they did. Well, the word got out to the fish of the Sea of Galilee that the Lord needed them to fill the nets. <laughs> and a multitude of fish came swimming right into their nets, and they were so heavy they could not pull them ashore. Another day, Jesus was asked whether he and his disciples pay their taxes. And Jesus called Peter. He was a fisherman. He told him to go fishing. And when he called the very first fish, look into the fish's mouth, and there would be a coin, and take that coin and pay their taxes. Jesus also exercised dominion over the birds of the air. Jesus told Peter the night before he was betrayed, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Peter denied Jesus three times, and immediately the rooster crowed. Who made that rooster crow? Who made that rooster crow at exactly the right time? It was Jesus. Jesus said, rooster, it's time to crow. And the rooster crowed. Jesus also exercised dominion over the beasts of the field. One day, Jesus told his disciples to, to get a donkey that nobody had ever ridden and bring it to him because he was going to use that donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Not a good idea to climb up on a donkey that's unbroken. If you do, you won't stay up there very long. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, he climbed up on that donkey, and the donkey calmly walked through the streets of Jerusalem on what we know today as Palm Sunday. The donkey knew who was boss. He knew that Jesus was his boss. Let me ask you, is he your boss? Another way I put, is he your Lord? Does Jesus reign in your life? Does he have control over your world? Your life, your family, is he in control? And then finally, Jesus exercised dominion over the natural world. A terrible storm arose on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples, they were in a small boat. And, and the little boat was about to go under, but Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, peace, 
peace be still. And there was an immediate calm. And the disciples, they were so amazed that they said, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus, he came to restore what man lost at the fall, man's dominion over creation. And today, everything is under Jesus' feet. Everything. You see, Adam was once crowned with glory and honor, but lost his crown because of sin. Jesus came to regain that glory and honor through his suffering, death, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. My friend, one day when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on earth, we will share his glory. We will reign with him. I want you to notice um, the last phrase in verse 9. Just look at that. So that by the grace of God, he, that is Jesus, might taste death for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. That's the chief reason he came. Jesus became a man so that he might taste death for everyone. Now, don't let that little word taste mislead you. It doesn't mean that Jesus just sampled at death. It doesn't mean that Jesus just, you know, nibbled at death for us. No, on the cross, Jesus drank fully from the bitter dregs of the cup of death for us. He died fully for us. And then that little preparation, oh, it, it, that little prepara- uh, preposition, it, it's a little word, but it's packed full of meaning. It means that Jesus died in our place. It means he died as our substitute. He died the death that we all deserve to die. He died for us. Yes, Jesus came to restore man's lost destiny. And it's your destiny too and mine. Second, Jesus became man to bring many sons to glory. He came to bring many sons to glory. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom, by whom, all things exist, the creator, in bringing many sons to glory, should should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, This is a beautiful summary of of the gospel. Jesus became man for, for many reasons. He came to redeem us, he came to save us, he came to forgive us, he he came to provide that needed righteousness that we must have to enter his presence. But we must not miss this reason he came. Hebrews says he came to bring many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. And you're among that company. He came to bring many sons to glory. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to trans, 
transform lost sinners into sons of God. He came to bring about a new creation, the family of God. That's why he came. He came to save us, to make us his family. And here Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. And, and of course, he is the founder, the originator of our salvation. But I believe a better translation is he, he is the pioneer of our salvation because a pioneer is one who blazes the trail for others you know I think about <clears throat> the great pioneers Lewis and Clark and their great expedition who explored the vast wilderness west of the Mississippi so that others could follow them and make new lives for themselves and their families they were trailblazers they blazed the trail for others but Jesus is the true trailblazer. He blazed the trail through his death and resurrection so that others could follow him in death and resurrection. And because Jesus conquered the grave, because Jesus conquered death, we shall join him one day in resurrection. What a great salvation. What a great Savior. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's all believers, all have one source. I, I think it's talking about we're all one. We are all in the same family, the family of God. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Not ashamed to call us brothers. Let that just sink in just for a moment. Imagine Jesus, the creator of the universe, is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers. You see, he's not only our Lord and our Savior, but because he became a man, because he became like us in every way except sin, he is our brother, capital B. He is our elder brother. Jesus is not ashamed of you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. As a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of me. The question is, are you ashamed of him? Are you ashamed of him? To talk about him. To share him with lost family members who need Jesus lost neighbors who need Jesus. Are you ashamed of him? There's a third reason, according to Hebrews, why Jesus came. He came because man, he came to deliver us from death and the devil. He became a man to deliver us from death and the devil. That's what we see in verses 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of David. And we are the offspring of David through faith because we have the same faith that Abraham had. You see, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was saved the same way we are. We are 
the children of Abraham because we possess the faith that Abraham had. You see, Jesus came to defeat our two great enemies, death and the devil. Let's think about death. It's a reality. We've all experienced death all too often. Some of us have experienced it all too recently. Death is a reality. People try to ignore it. People try to deny it. But death is inevitable. It's coming unless Jesus comes first. It's coming to all of us unless Jesus comes first. Without Without Jesus, death is something to fear, no question about it. In fact, it is the most frightening thing you can possibly imagine. If you're outside of Christ, my friend, I just want you to know, and I, I say this lovingly, you have much to fear in death. If you're outside of the gospel, if you, not, if you have not believed this gospel of Jesus Christ, you have much to fear in death. Death of the unbeliever not only brings the end of physical life, but it brings the beginning of spiritual death, which is separation from the presence of God forever. Horrible thought. Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and this, this describes hell better than anything else, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Not good news. But there is good news. And it's the gospel. And the gospel is simply this. Jesus came, he died, he rose again to deliver us from the fear of death. See, if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. And you have nothing to fear in death. Nothing to fear in death. As a believer, we can put our head on our pillar at night, and if God takes us, we don't have to worry about what's going to happen next because we know what's going to happen next. The Bible says to be absent from the body for the believers to be present with the Lord. See, Jesus' death and resurrection defeated death and the grave. Death for the believer is just a step closer to heaven. Death for the child of God is just the pathway to glory, pathway into the presence of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. How about that? I have, the, I have the keys of death and Hades. And then Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers or heights nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, my friend, death is dead. (laughs) Death is dead for the believer 
in Jesus Christ. But there's another enemy, and that's the devil. There are those who would like us to believe that the devil is not real. But I promise you, my friend, the devil is very real. He's not that funny-looking guy in red tights with horns and a forked tail. He's not some cartoon character that we see on TV or on the funny pages. The devil is the enemy of God and his children. The enemy of God and his children. First Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He, ser- he seeks to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a liar who denies God's word. He's a destroyer who seeks to ruin men's souls. And he's the tempter. But let me tell you something about the devil. He comes to us as an angel of light. Not not in a scary way, but in a very winsome way in order to deceive us and to entice us. The devil doesn't care if you have religion. He loves religion. I, I believe that Satan has religion up to his ears. He loves religion because religion will send you to hell quicker than anything else. Religion says that if you're good enough, if if you keep the rules, if you keep the rules, you can earn your way to heaven. And that's a devil's lie. The devil doesn't care if you come to church. The devil doesn't care if you join the church. The devil doesn't care if you're baptized. But the devil will do anything and everything in his power to keep you from believing the gospel and trusting Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have no reason to fear the devil. Jesus destroyed the devil by his death and resurrection. Now, that does not mean that Satan is not alive and well on the planet Earth, because he is. He can tempt us, he can deceive us, but the devil no longer has power over us as believers. No longer. You see, we can tell the devil where to jump. Before you were a Christian, you were controlled by the devil and the forces of this world. But as Christians, we're no longer under the power and control of the evil one. Now we are under the power and control of the Holy Spirit as we yield to him and obey him. I like the way Ken Hughes puts it. The devil prowls about, but with a limp. Oh, he prowls around, but with a limp. The devil is a defeated foe, and my friend, one day, and I'm looking forward to that day, he will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. But there's a fourth reason that Hebrews tells us that Jesus became a man. Jesus became a man to become our great high priest. And he's going to have much more to say about that in verse in chapter 4. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Okay, there's a big word, but we need to know what it means. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow. Jesus had to become a man in order to become our great high priest. You know, angels can't identify with us because they were not created like us. But Jesus was. Angels cannot help us, but Jesus can, our great high priest. When Jesus was on earth, he experienced every human infirmity except sin. Every single thing that you go through and I go through, he experienced it. Jesus knew what it was to be tired and hungry and thirsty, to be despised, rejected, ridiculed, abused, lied about, falsely accused. Have you ever been hurt by a family member or a friend? Jesus understands that. Have you ever been rejected maybe by a brother or sister, a mom or dad? Have you ever been abused? Jesus understands it all. Jesus became flesh and blood just like us, and he experienced these very same things. He understands because his own flesh and blood didn't believe in him. They rejected him. Jesus, he knew what it was to sorrow, to grieve, to lose a loved one. Jesus feels our pain because he's been there. He's walked in our shoes. I want you to see three truths about Jesus. Number one, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our merciful great high priest. Not only because he feels our pain, but because he can do something about our pain. He can meet us where we are. Well, see, mercy is not just feeling compassion. Mercy is the ability to do something about it. And Jesus is able to help us. He's able to meet our needs. And it says Jesus is our faithful, not only our mercy, but our faithful high priest because he will never let you down. He will never fail you. He will always be there to help you. When we were tempted, Jesus was always there. He was able to help us because he too was tempted. We, we know the story. He was tempted. He was tempted three times by the devil, more than any human being will ever be tempted, and he overcame all three of those temptations. In verse 18 it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I want you to look at the little word, help here the little word help it literally means to run to the cry of a child it means to run to the cry of a child now this is what every good parent will do when a child is in harm's way and cries out for help a loving parent or grandparent will run to that child's rescue they will run to the cry of their child. This is what Jesus does for us. We're his children. He runs to the cry of his children in times of temptation and trouble and adversity. He runs to our rescue. He always does. So we cry out to the one who has walked in our shoes, who has walked himself through suffering and trials and temptations. He's not a stranger to all you go through or I go through. He understands what we're going through. A 
person who has never grieved cannot fully identify with the grieving. A person who has never sorrowed cannot identify with those who sorrow. Who can best comfort parents who have lost a child? Parents who have lost a child. Who can best who can best comfort and encourage someone who is depressed, someone who has gone through that themselves? You see, Jesus can comfort us in our suffering because he's been there. Folks, he's been there. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. And then thirdly, Jesus is our great high priest who has made, here's that word, propitiation for our sins. He's made propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation in verse 17 is a very important gospel word. And you know, people ask, well, why do you throw out these big words? If they're in the Bible, folks, we better know what they mean. The word propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's wrath for sin. The satisfaction of God's wrath for sin. You see, God is a holy God. We can't fathom that. God is a holy God. God is pure, holy light. There's not a taint of sin or imperfection in him. But we're sinners. We're everything that God is not. We've all offended a holy God. Therefore, God's justice demands that he must judge sin and folks, he did at the cross. He did at the cross. At the cross, God poured out his holy wrath against sinners on Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus, he bore the full wrath and the judgment of God for sinners. And as a result, God's wrath and judgment was satisfied, and now God is able to save sinners like you and me. Oh, my friends, what a salvation. What a salvation. Why did Jesus come? To restore man's lost destiny. Why did Jesus come? To bring many sons to glory. Why did he come? To free us from the fear of death. To deliver us from the devil. Why did Jesus come? To become our great high priest. You see, Jesus came for all of these reasons. But all through this wonderful book of Hebrews, we are pointed to the cross. We are pointed to to the cross because that's the reason he came it's all about the cross it's all about my sin it's all about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again it's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday all about the cross. My friend, if you haven't come to the foot of the cross, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him. 
cry out to him. Cry out to him. The Bible says, for whosoever shall cry to the Lord, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, shall be saved. Let's pray together.